Oh, let not time deceive you. You cannot conquer time. In the burrows of the nightmare, where justice naked is, time watches from the shadow and coughs when you would kiss. In headaches and in worry, vaguely life leaks away, and time will have his fancy tomorrow, tomorrow, or today. My name is Kevin, Kevin Cheller. We're in a shop called Timepiece Antiques. It's the only clock shop in Dublin City. And uh, here we conduct the restoration of pre-20th century clocks of all shapes, designs and origins. And uh, we're open almost 11 years. Well, a lot of the clocks that you'd see here would be um, typical kitchen clocks, things that people associate in their memory from farmhouse kitchens, schools, that sort of thing. Myself, I went to St. Pat's and Drumcondra, and a lot of these round office-style clocks would have been found in the hallways. And indeed, they were found in most of the um, Department of Education buildings. We found some of them that would have been in Dublin Castle. Um, lamentably, they were sold off in um, the OPW sales, auction sales, and about eight, nine years ago, thousands of these were sold off, and we found one or two with Dublin Castle stamps on them, and then others would, would be from various local national schools and what have you. Uh, they were relatively cheap at the time, maybe £150, they're, about, they're now about £500 plus, and uh, getting rarer by the day. Um, a pal of mine, who was my best friend at the time, we were graduating from secondary school and he wanted to go to Israel his mother wouldn't let him and uh, talked him into going to the Institute of Horology in Blanchardstown and after a short period of time he talked me into it and uh, we, d- we did three years there graduated in 1981 and um, I came out with a, a diploma in watch repair and maintenance but after a short period of time it, People like your local priest, your aunts and uncles, they all want you to do clocks, um, heirlooms that were left behind to them and what have you. And uh, a quick look in the Golden Pages would tell you that there isn't anybody doing this kind of work at this level. So myself and my partner Anton, um, about 13, 14 years ago, decided that perhaps it would be a good venture in the long term as the watch industry was dying. So that's how we came about doing this, this sort of thing, uh, a gradual move from watches into clocks. And about six or seven years ago, we stopped doing watches entirely, and we just do pre-20th century work. And uh, the kind of work that we do now, I didn't think th- there would be this sort of volume about. Um, your impressions change over 13 years, and so do your experiences. And we're doing work now that your average watching clockmaker wouldn't... Um, wouldn't hear of. I suppose we're a marginal business in a marginal industry. The measurement of time is uh, is something that um, 
we live our lives by, but you wouldn't want to measure your time by any of these old timekeepers. You know, if you get five or six minutes a week accuracy, that's about all you'll get. Um, what intrigues me most about them is the fact that they still work after 100 and 200 years old. And uh, the quality of the workmanship, especially the very old ones, about, oh, late 17th century, things you wouldn't find too often, but the quality of, of engineering is phenomenal. It's all hand-wrought, of course. Later stuff is not quite as good. But um, I have a, a bracket clock movement over there. We're doing the case at the minute, and that mechanism would be about 1770, and it's only about nine inches tall by about six inches across, but it's, it's absolutely wonderfully put together, uh, striking with a pull repeat, which means that if you pull a cord, you will get whatever hour or quarter struck on bells that it happens to be and clocks like that were, were basically used in the night when people had no electricity they would pull the cord and they would get a, re- a record of exactly where they were in the night bracket clock, which is of London origin, it's about, oh, 1760, it's a brass arch dial with a strike silent facility in the arch, and it will hour repeat if you pull this cord here, please God, there we go, so in the middle of the night, you pull that cord and you, you know exactly where you are in terms of time. Now, it's a little loud because it's outside its case. If it's within the case, it will have a softer tone. It also comes with an alarm facility. This is an early alarm mechanism. And it can be set by a disc at the front of the dial behind the hands. And this is the sort of tone that you get from that. With any luck. Not enough to waken the dead, but certainly enough to get you up in the morning. So, there's a bit of soul to a clock like this, where later things become very, certainly in the machine age, very matter-of-fact, uh, down to the, to the point, where something like this is, uh, is done by an artisan. Um, when we have a lot of work done in the batch together, and it's all on test, come 12 o'clock this can be... Um, clockman's hell or heaven whichever way you you like to look at it Um, things are ringing, banging, gonging you name it but uh, by and large we have things going in a system here so as you can see from this carton there are a lot of wheels uh, lying idle there which we're we're working with now that one clock might take me two days to finish so things stay silent for a lot of their time here and uh, waiting patiently for their, their moments in time Time has 
always fascinated me. I think it's the most amazing thing. We use it absolutely every minute of the day. I mean, you can hear behind us here the traffic sounds. People are rushing around. They haven't a minute to spare. We use it when we want to know when to get up and when to have lunch and when to meet someone for a pint and when to watch something on the telly. And then we use it in all kinds of hidden ways. You're tuning into radio now at maybe 88.5, but all of that, that frequency, that comes back to time. And when you use the telephone, you're going to be paying for the time you're on the phone and when you're navigating, if you're out at sea or in a plane and you need to navigate, that uses time. Time is everywhere. But what is time? What do those four letters actually mean? And where does time come from? Well, the history of time is fascinating. It starts way back, probably even before the ancient Babylonians. And you can see in the time we use today, you can see some of the traces of that history. It's fascinating. But most of the time that we get today actually comes from the the sun, moon and stars because it comes from astronomy. Now, if you live in the city as I do, then you're probably not aware of the sun, moon and stars anymore, except on a nice sunny day as we have today. But to hear about the history of time, we need to talk to an astronomer. And that's why we've come out to Dunsink Observatory. It's a lovely, quiet, well, relatively quiet oasis on the outskirts of Dublin City. We're looking down over the city even now. And I've come to talk to an astronomer, Ian Elliott, about the history of time. Astronomers use three units of time, the day, the month, and the year. The day is defined by the rotation of the Earth relative to to the sun or the stars. The month is defined by the orbiting of the moon around the Earth. And the year is defined by the orbiting of the Earth around the sun. So all the problems with keeping track of time in the past have been concerned with relating the day, the month, and the year to one another. And that leads into the problems of the calendar and of clocks and uh, all those complicated things we, we want to know about. We get the day because the Earth is spinning round, but where about, what about the hours and the minutes? Where do they come from? Well, as life became more complicated, it was necessary to subdivide the day. And it was the Egyptians and also the Babylonians that decided to div- subdivide the daylight hours and the nighttime hours into 12 But day and night weren't equally long, so these hours were actually of different lengths. And it was only much later in the Middle Ages that we began to have uh, hours of the same length when it became possible to subdivide the daylight hours uh, equally. I often wondered about 60 seconds, the way we divide the minute into 60, which seems like a kind of an arbitrary number, but do you think it might have had anything to do with pulse rate? You know, the way it kind of maybe 60 beats to your pulse each minute or something? I doubt it, actually, but it's very interesting because it tells us that the ancient Babylonians used to use a number base of 60. We use a number base of 10, the decimal system, but 60 has a great advantage because it can be subdivided in many ways, and it's very useful for commerce in that way. But the, the Babylonians actually were great mathematicians and they, they subdivided the angles of the uh, circle, first of all into 360, and then they subdivided, that gave them 360 degrees in one circle, and they subdivided the degree into 60 units, and then uh, each unit again by 60. So we end up with this idea of degrees, minutes and seconds. 
And as there are 60 seconds in a minute and 60 minutes in an hour, so if you have an old-style watch that has a, a minute hand going round, it's doing a whole circle. It's doing the 360 degrees of a circle in an hour. That's right. So the next time you look at your watch, just remember, it was the Babylonians who were responsible for that. grounds in Dunsink and back towards the, the telescope and the dome. Now you mentioned that the, the month, or maybe I should say the moon comes from the moon, but where does the week come from? Well again we go back to the Babylonians because they noticed that there were seven objects in, in the sky the, the sun, the moon and the planets that you can see with the naked eye and they worshipped these and it, it came about that they uh, named the they subdivided the, the the month into four, and that gave them roughly se- seven. And is that four because there are four quarters to the phase of the moon? You've got the the, the new moon, first quarter, full moon, I second think, quarter, about a week each. I think that's the way it must have arisen. Yes, the different phases of the moon, and then the seven days of the week. So you've got twenty-eight days. But actually, the lunar month is twenty-nine and a half. But it's close enough. Close enough. <laughs> So then we, we have the days of the week, and these were uh, used by the Romans. So we have Saturn Day, Sunday, Moon Day, Mars Day, Mer- Mercury Day, uh, Jupiter Day, and Venus Day. Okay, that explains why the days of the, 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 days of the week go in, in French and Spanish and so on. That's yeah. right, and, right. And then the, our Scandinavian friends changed the names for us. So, so we have a mixture of... Uh, the Roman and, and the uh, Scandinavian names now. Right. How did your average Egyptian actually tell the time on the street, though? Well, I suppose with the sundial, because the shadow changes as the sun moves across the sky. But then later, uh, water clocks came into use, and uh, things like hourglasses, the, the sand going from one side of an hourglass to the other. And uh, at night time, you could, or even in the daytime, you could use candles or even burning of incense, this, this type of thing. So there were many ingenious devices made, but the subdividing uh, of the hours was, was, a, was a problem. Right. I suppose it was always cockroach to get you up in the morning. Well, that's true. <laughs> a bit unreliable, though.
a beautiful, clear and almost warm winter's morning. It actually feels like spring. There's a lovely sun. It's not very high in the sky, although it's nice and high up, but it's as high as you might expect for this time of the year. But Ian, tell me, where does the year come from? Well, for astronomers, the year begins at the first day of spring, which is when the sun crosses the Earth's equator. And the length of the year is just under 365 and a quarter days. And the problem is to fit the number of days into the year and then regulate the calendar. So were there always the 365 days in the year? Is that kind of an absolute number? No, indeed. If we look back in time, say to about 400 million years ago, we find there were actually about 420 days in the year. The Earth was spinning faster and it's been gradually slowing down because of the friction of tides. Hmm. So if we look forward in time, are we going to have longer days but fewer of them, do you think? Yes, if we go forward about 400 million years, there'll probably be only about 300 days in, in the year, and we'll have longer days. Right. Good news for anyone who'd like to think there might be more hours in the day. They just have to hang around a bit. That's right, yes. For centuries, if not for maybe thousands of years, there was a really close relationship between time and astronomy and religion. Now, for the first reason, I suppose churches and temples need to know what hour of the day it is so that they can call the faithful to prayer at the right time. But the other reason that uh, churches would need to know the right time and the right date is so that they can have a calendar and call people along on the right date for their feast days and their festivals. But getting a calendar right isn't an easy Thing to do. What, what exactly is the problem, Ian? Well, the problem is that the length of the year isn't an even number. The, the length of the year, according to the seasons, is just under 365 and, and a quarter days. And the Egyptians were the first to recognize this. So Julius Caesar borrowed this idea from them and set up the Julian calendar. And that worked quite well, but there was a discrepancy of about 11 minutes per year, or in other words... It doesn't uh, sound like much. (laughs) No, no, but over 400 years, that amounts to three days. And over about a a thousand years, then you have a discrepancy of nearly 10 days. And the result of that was, in in about the 14th century, the uh, spring equinox came about the 11th of March, and Easter <laughs> Easter was out of phase completely. So Pope Gregory XIII decided to do something about this, and he instituted the calendar reform, and he left out 10 days, and uh, he also decided to drop some of the leap years. So we need a, a leap year every so often, but just not quite as often as Julius Caesar was having them. Is that it? That's just, correct. Just to keep us on, yes. on track. And actually the Gregorian calendar, which we use, is very accurate. It'll only be out by one day in 3,000 years. So it's good for an, a few millennia now. You said he, he did away with 10 days. I mean, it's not that easy a thing to do, to just suddenly do away with 10 days. What actually happened? Well, people didn't like it. They thought they were being cheated out of wages. But the, the funny thing was that it wasn't necessary to disturb the days of the week, that the, that the days of the week have remained uh, following one another continuously for many, many thousands of years. So you, the date may, may have been changed, but the day of the week wasn't. How did that change go down? Was it well received? Well, it wasn't because the Protestant countries in Europe thought this was a, a popish plot 
and they'd have nothing to do with it. So for about 150 years, there were actually two calendars in force. The Julian calendar uh, that was remained from Julius Caesar, it was recognised in Protestant countries, and the Gregorian calendar, which held sway in uh, Catholic countries. And then in 1752, it was decided to come into step. And by that time, the gap had amounted to 11 days. So in 1752, in September, 11 days were left out and uh, the situation was, was much clearer. Does anyone still use the old Julian calendar even today? Well, I believe there's a little island off the Shetlands, Fowler, and those people still use the Julian calendar. So what does that mean? Are they celebrating Christmas on a different day of the year from us? Well, so I believe. I, it must be quite complicated. <laughs> Time waits for no man. A stitch in time, save nine. Time on my hands. Time flies. Tempest unit. Time heals. Time to time again. No time like the present. The time of my life. start counting the years though I suppose we go back to Jewish times when they had the idea of a creation and of time flowing that is very much our concept of time now, as, as, as something like a river flowing past us and then this led to the notion of counting years from the start of the reign of a king for instance but then became very complicated because kings came and went. And if you were to construct a chronology, uh, then you'd have to keep a, an account of all the kings. And then the idea arose about 525 to start counting from the uh, calculated birth of Christ. This would be the, a kind of a Christian count. That's right. Up to that, the calendar was, was based on, on the date of birth of one of the Roman emperors and the Christian church didn't like to f f found its calendar on, on a pagan emperor. So a monk called Dennis the Little in 525 uh, started counting from what he thought was the birth of Christ. Actually, he made a mistake. He, he was about six years out. But this has given rise to our calendar. And uh, then in about the 8th century, the Venerable Bede in the north of England decided that he wanted to count backwards in time. So he invented the idea of BC years. And this meant that one idea was immediately uh, preceded by one BC. Now, the reason for that is he had to use Roman numerals which didn't contain a zero. So that's why we don't have a year zero. But what implications does this have, the fact that we didn't have a year zero? Well, you know, everyone's talking about the new millennium, but no one seems to know when it's going to be. And this all depends on how you define your starting point. And the starting point was defined uh, by the uh, Dennis the Little as the 1st of January, year one. Uh, 
you add a thousand years to that and you get the 1st of January a thousand to one. You add 2,000 years and you get the 1st of January 2001. So the third millennium won't start until the end of the year 2000. Does that mean you won't be celebrating? <laughs> oh no, <laughs> I, I think this is a good excuse for celebrating it twice. But that's just one calendar, one millennium that's happening in the year 2000. Are there different systems and different calendars in use? Well, yes, there are many sorts of calendars. For instance, the Jewish calendar uh, works on a, on a different system, which is based on the lunar month. And it, it, uh, it's quite complicated converting from one calendar to another. The, this year is actually the year 5757, according to the Jewish calendar. And in the Islamic system, it's 1417. For centuries, all that people ever had was sundials or maybe a simple clock. And even then, that clock probably only had one hand. It showed the hour. There wasn't a need for it. You couldn't have told whether it was a quarter past or half past the hour. So all you could do was say that you'd maybe meet somebody at four-ish or something like that. That probably didn't matter in uh, even the Middle Ages because I suppose that the concept and the view of time was very different to what we have today. I mean, people would start work on building a cathedral that could take centuries to complete. I mean, I can't imagine anyone actually starting to work now on a project that they wouldn't see finished in their own lifetime. But time was different then. And Again, I've read of court cases in the Middle Ages where people would be called in. They wouldn't have known their own time and the community would be brought together and actually asked, is this person aged 21 and are they entitled to, to their inheritance at this stage? So you didn't even know your own age. Now, that was probably okay in cities and in the countries but if you were out on the the ocean you were all at sea because time is navigation and without an accurate clock you really were lost and this I suppose is the problem of longitude. Ian what what was the problem of longitude? Well the problem was to construct a clock that would work at sea. You could find your local time by observations of the sun and the stars. But you also wanted to carry the Greenwich Mean Time with you because the difference between the two clocks would effectively give your longitude. One hour of difference is equivalent to 15 degrees. So this means really that at sea, time was equivalent to distance. And this was a big problem. And the British government put up a a big prize, a big money prize uh, for the person that might solve this. And the man who eventually did it was John Harrison, originally a carpenter, but he was very, very skilled with his hands and and he had great ideas. He did away with the pendulum. He invented a a very ingenious way of making the, the clocks work. And these were able to be used on ship and they were very accurate. And in fact, you could say that the invention of the clock... Uh, allowed Britain to rule the seas and create the British Empire.
now that there were accurate clocks, time became something that you could measure very precisely. It became something to save, something that you didn't waste. Time became money. And instead of being associated with religion, as it had been for a long time, it became associated with science and technology, and in the 19th century, with the Industrial Revolution. And one of the major changes there was the arrival of steam power. And in the old days, you could maybe work away at home in the cottage, but with steam power in the new mills and in the new factories, you had to be there when the steam engine was running. You had to be there on time. And you had a whole new way in which time began to control people's lives. But another way where time became controlling in people's lives in the 19th century was with the arrival of the trains. Ian, what was the impact of railways on time? Well, of course, people wanted to know when they could catch the next train. And this meant that each railway station had to have a clock showing the time. In the case of Ireland, it would show Dublin time. And in fact, in Galway, you'd have two clocks in the, in the station, one showing normal Galway time and the other showing Dublin time. And there'd be a difference of 11 minutes between them. And in fact, in those days, the legal definition of time was the time at each place given by the sun. And it was only in 1880 that the idea of having a uniform time in a country was adopted. In Britain, it was Greenwich Mean Time, defined by the Greenwich Longitude in London. And in Ireland, it was Dublin Time, which was defined by the time uh, given by the longitude of Dunsink. And there was 25 minutes, roughly, between them. How did people know what time it was, though? I mean, Dunsink time is one thing, but how did they know when it was one o'clock at Dunsink time? How was that time distributed? Well, it was distributed by the electric telegraph. There was a telegraph line going from Dunsink into the centre of Dublin, and each day the time ball would be dropped. This was a big sphere, about four or five feet in diameter, on top of a, a pole that was situated uh, between Westmoreland Street and Aston Quay, on the corner, so that the captains of the ships tied up on the Liffey could see it. And at 1pm Dublin time, the time ball was let fall. And all the citizens looked out for this because then they could set their watches by it. So the coming of the railways brought a standard time to Ireland, but what about the internationally agreed, the time zones that we have today? When did they become established? Well, as international traffic grew and uh, ships uh, moved all over the world, it was necessary to have time zones roughly each of 15 degrees. So within that 15 degree band, all the countries would observe the same time. So now there's an internationally agreed convention of having time zones. For, for instance, when you're travelling across the United States, you, you go from one time t- zone to another and you have to reset your watch. And uh, this makes life uh, slightly easier. And when were they set up? Uh, they were set up about uh, 1880, I believe. And I suppose that was the start of the whole international administration of time. I mean, there's a whole bureaucracy that goes with time now. Does that date from those days? Well, yes, it's, it's, it's grown over the years. In fact, the governing body for, for time is situated in Paris. And uh, nowadays we need to know time very, very accurately. And in, in fact, our modern time is, is based on atomic time or time given based on the vibrations of cesium atoms.
So it's no longer based on anything astronomical. Well, there still is a link because we we must always be synchronized with the seasons. So in fact, uh, sometimes, uh, well, twice a year, in fact, there's the opportunity of adding leap seconds in order to to keep the atomic time still in uh, synchronism with uh, the seasons and with the the rotation of the Earth. century has changed our view of time. Time isn't what it used to be anymore. Time used to be linked to astronomy. It used to be linked to the sun and the moon and the stars and now time has gone atomic. The other thing that's changed is that clocks and watches used to be the playthings of the rich and now they're cheap and disposable and if you want one you can probably have one for a pound from the pound shop. With these highly sophisticated electronic clocks and watches we can now measure time to absolute fractions of a second and fractions of a second have now become quite a long point in time Um, fractions of a second are really important if you're racing in athletics fractions of a second are really important in physics they have atomic particles now that they can study and they live their whole lives in a fraction of a second and even those clocks may no longer be the most precise, the most accurate things in the universe because astronomers have discovered pulsars. Pulsars are weird kinds of stars spinning around thousands of times a second and who knows, they may actually be the most precise things in the universe. So maybe the 21st century will take us back to astronomy. Maybe we'll be looking to pulsars and setting our watches by pulsars. But anyway, speaking of watches and clocks, we've come to a very unusual place. It's not too far from Dunsink Observatory. It's Blanchardstown. You can hear the motorway behind me because this is the Irish-Swiss Institute of Horology, part of the city of Dublin VC. And here they are training people to put the clock back, or at least to put the clock back together again. I wonder what exactly they're doing here. We'll go and find out. Brian, you're a director of the Irish-Swiss Institute of Horology. That's correct, yeah. What goes on here? We are training watch technicians to service the Swiss watch industry. And how did this place come about? In 1964, the Swiss watch industry approached the Department of Education and requested us to set up an institute in Ireland to improve the after-sale servicing of quality Swiss watches. So is your interest in the modern watch or do you also have an interest in the, the old pendulums and the old clocks from the 19th century and before? We cater for all types of timepieces here. The original Swiss watches were, of course, all mechanical. We deal with those completely and nowadays we are moving on to the electronic area as well. Yes. Can we go and see some of what you do? Certainly, of course, yes. Now, this is the, the first-year area here. Carl is the teacher here in the first year. And as you can see, they're all working away on the tool-making. Peter's actually working on a, a watch that he has uh, brought in 
It's actually dating 1865. It's one of a, a, a rare watch, a pocket watch. Um, it's from New Ross, and it, we're quite excited about it here because it came from his family's ancestors' home. Uh, so we're quite excited. Now, the watch is showing quite a lot of wear, so we're actually burnishing the pivots. We're shining up the pivots so that they will run free again. If, when they're worn, they, uh, they cause friction in the jewels, so we have to burnish them up. As well as that, there's a lot of the brass in the wheels that are badly tarnished, so we have to polish it up. So he's turning the wheel on the lathe and burnishing it with a tungsten burnisher. So he's polishing up the, the wheel. Westminster chime. It's actually out of a bracket clock, which is the case that's over there behind you. The case stands roughly about 18 inches high. Um, basically, what you have is you have the timepiece, the single train in the centre here, which tells the time. That would be your hours and minutes. On the left, we have a chime section, another train, which actually causes the clock to chime. It's on the 15 minutes, on the half hour, on three quarters, on the hour. And on the extreme right here, we have the strike system, which actually counts the number of hours. So then, say, for example, at uh, 3 o'clock, the hands face 3 o'clock, the clock will strike 3. But also, with that, it will chime a melody. And this is called a Westminster chime, because the melody it chimes is actually the Westminster chime from London. the Irish Swiss Institute of Horology where 30 young students are learning how to put clocks and watches back together again. And the clock they have in there, that old one, is really fascinating. The, the movements are just beautiful. It's an absolute, it's both a work of art and a work of science and technology. And you can see in it so much history. The, the sweep of the hands as they go round the clock, you don't see that in digital watches now, but that is still running out the way in which the sun's shadow would move round a sundial in the old days, where the word clockwise comes from. But, I mean, maybe in the next century when we all have digital watches, we won't even know or remember what the word clockwise means. And again, to think about the fact that it was a clock like that, or a clock not unlike that anyway, that helped the British Empire to establish itself and led to the great voyages of discovery in the last century and helped to shape the 19th century and the world as we know it today, that all that comes down to a clock as well too. And then you come into the 20th century and it's all gone electronic and atomic and who knows where it'll go. And we have cheap watches, watches that used to be so expensive up until relatively recently. Now, if you want a watch, you can have it. But I suppose the the irony of that is that now that everyone has watches, I mean, who has time on their hands? Because the awful thing about time is it's all around us, but it has that terrible habit of running out just when you need it most. Time, 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 time,